0: For more presentations like this, visit www.xenos.org. Yeah, so we're in 2 Corinthians. It's been a couple weeks. We were in chapter 4 last time. We were talking about this issue of how to let God's Spirit work through us to love others. We were talking about how as we walk with God, as we grow with God, God wants to work through us, but it's his adequacy. It's his power that works through us. And we have a funny way of getting in the way of God working through us. The the things of greatest value of, of of true power that we can bring to the table are letting the power of God work through our lives. And so we talked about it in terms of just saying yes to God. How do we depend on God? We follow his leadership. We look at and study his word. We pray and we respond to the leading of the Holy Spirit. And when God asks us, we, we say yes, even when it's scary, even when it's uncomfortable. That a part of letting God work through us is learning how to persevere through suffering. That suffering, while is not fun by any stretch of the imagination, and we're not ascetics, we don't go out looking for suffering, but that we understand that suffering is a part of living in a fallen world, whether you're following God or not, but that God promises that he can use our suffering to refine our faith, to hone us so that we can be more useful for him. We talked about The importance of being willing to fail. One of the things that makes it really scary to say yes to God is he will call you into situations that you feel completely inadequate for. That you are completely inadequate for. And that's part of how we learn dependence. And a lot of times, a lot of us, myself especially, we tend to go into situations that we're completely inadequate for, but we do it in our own strength. And the way we learn often to depend and lean and uh, and uh, be empowered by God rather than being in our own strength. As we go out in our own strength, we get in way over our head and we fail. And then the question is simply, are we going to allow that to be an opportunity to teach us dependence? Or are we going to quit? And so failure is a huge part of learning to let the power of God work through you. Learning how to depend on him. So that's what Paul was really kind of talking to the church and Corinth about in chapter 4. And so we turn then to chapter 5, and I want to focus on the second half of 5. But before we do that, we've got to kind of do a brief summary of the first part of 5 so we understand our context. What he's talking about in our passage this morning is this idea of what should our motives be in serving others. Once we understand all the things that God has done for us, once we understand that we should serve and love others in dependence of him, it raises the natural question, why? Why should I serve others? Why should I let the power of God work through me? And motives, whenever you start talking about motives, it gets kind of sticky. It's a funny thing because we are fallen, broken human beings. We are imperfect in so many ways and we have mixed motives all the time. We do different things for a lot of different reasons and it can get real murky. Sometimes we don't even necessarily understand what our motives are. Sometimes we do the same thing and we keep doing it, but our motives change for why we're doing it. So motive becomes a complicated discussion. I love Abraham Lincoln. Abraham Lincoln was a student of the Bible and he wrote, I believe it's universally understood and acknowledged that all men will ever act correctly unless they have a motive to do otherwise, right? (laughs) And I think he is trying to be humorous here. What he's saying is he understands human nature. We always have motives to do otherwise, don't we? And he understood that as a student of the Bible, Jeremiah 17, 9. The heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? You know, there are great things about us. We are fearfully and wonderfully made. God created us as image bearers. We don't, we're not saying that there is nothing noble about the human condition. But what we're saying is, is that it's desperately broken. It's twisted. It's not what God intended it to be when he made us. We have gone far astray from the plan that God made when he created us in an unfallen state. And as a result of that, we are always conflicted within ourselves, doing things, doing the right things for the wrong reasons, doing wrong things, sometimes for the right reasons. It gets really complicated Motive is, is hard to understand. So as Paul gets into this in the first part of chapter five, and he's talking about what should our motives be in serving others? We have some pretty good ideas of what our motives shouldn't be. Right. As I sat and thought about this, what, what are the things that the wrong motives that are in my heart? Right. I mean, I've been walking with God for 20 years. I've been in a position of leadership and teaching And I gotta be totally honest with you, there are lots of wrong reasons to do God's work. And there are reasons that I struggle with every day. I mean, you can't get up regularly in front of three, four, five hundred people and not have the threat of just wanting to glorify yourself. You know, everyone, whether you're a home church leader, whatever it is, when you're in a position where you're on the stage and several hundred people are looking at you, part of your heart goes, nice, right? (laughs) This is what this is what I've been looking for. You want to get your needs met by people smiling at you and, and, and coming and talking to you. And that is a, an evil part that will creep into your heart as you seek to do Christian work. A position of leadership is a position where people are looking to you to lead the way. And your ego gets involved there. And it's impossible not to do this kind of work. Because what we're talking about is is serving other people in God's name, which, if you do that, will make you very attractive to other people because they have lots of needs and lots of questions. And if you're willing to listen to them, if you're willing to love them and serve them, they will begin to look at you in a new light, and you will find yourself feeling like, I kind of like this. It's very easy to slip into that motive. Riches, right? Now, you might say, well, I don't know anyone would be a pastor in Xenos and have a motive of riches, right? (laughs) And that's true. And I mean, that's, I'm really, I'm really grateful for the legacy that we have of, uh, of, of having reasonable salaries for all of our employees. But we can look on TV and we can look out at the wider quote unquote Christian world and we can see people making millions of dollars primarily off the poor, certainly And many of people have the motive of riches when they're trying to do it in the context of pretending to serve God. And I don't know, I wouldn't exempt myself from this either, actually, when I think about it. You know, there are days where I go to work, there are days where I serve. Why? Because it's my job. Because I have to feed and clothe and shelter my family. And there are days where I will do things and you know, to serve the Lord or to serve the community, and the only reason I'm doing it is because I don't want to lose my job. That's part of the mixed motive of doing this kind of work. Now, hopefully, these things aren't primary. They're not you know, the main reason why you do what you do. But leadership <coughs> becomes a complicated thing. As a home group leader, you'll find there are days that you don't want to go to your home group. Why? Because you're selfish, you're fleshly, you want to do whatever you want to do. You want your freedom, right? But you go because you've committed to it, because that's what you've said that you were going to do, and that's the only reason you're there. Now, that doesn't necessarily do uh, God a lot of favor, and not necessarily the people a lot of favor, but these are the kinds of motives we can struggle with. Some of us serve God because we want to feel good. We feel like, you know, we want to be involved and we want to puff up our sense of self-righteousness, right? I'm doing things that matter. I'm doing things that are good. I'm a good person. And that's why I serve. Again, it's just another form of self-glorification. We love to bargain with God. We love to say, well, God, I will serve you, and I will teach, and I will take my time out to spend with people. Just bless my life. Just make my life easy. Protect my children. Protect my family. Keep me safe. And that is a motive that we are going to struggle with. We are dark, selfish, broken human beings who are trying to serve God. But we have all these other things that tend to get in the way and that are constantly there. I haven't met anyone who's so far along in their walk with God where they've said, you know, my motives are pure all the time. And if they did, I definitely wouldn't believe them. I would, I would beware of that person at that point if that was what their attitude was. So Paul is discussing in this passage what our motives should be. But he does so in the context of the great things that God has already done. One of the incredible things that you really have to own if you want to be used by God, if you want to walk with God as a Christian believer, is you have to rest in the secure knowledge that God has already loved you, forgiven you. He died for you on the cross in the person of Jesus Christ. And you are guaranteed a place with him in eternity when you receive Christ. We don't do this to earn God's love. We do it as a response to the free love that God has already given. And so he talks a lot about that kind of stuff in 2nd core 5, 1 through 8. He talks about the fact that we know as believers that our true home is with God. That this life, this mortal coil, this experience is a temporary experience. That if you're an eternal being, you ex- begin to exist at the moment that you're born, but you continue ex- to exist in eternity future. Your body will will age and decay and die, but you will continue on. And the promise for those who are in Jesus Christ is that that eternity is with him where he has eliminated all pain, all evil, all suffering. And that hope, That promise, the assurance of that, not just the the, the idea that, well, that might be something that possibly happens in the future, but that is you have won at the game of life. No matter how bad things get here, no matter how far off track, no matter how terrible and painful they are in this life, eternity and paradise is waiting for you with God. And he emphasizes that. He emphasizes that God has given believers his spirit as a promise of what is to come. That God doesn't just say this. He doesn't just make this promise, but that he comes and literally gets involved. He indwells you as a believer in Jesus Christ with his spirit. And he says that that is a promise. Let's look at that verse, 2 Corinthians five. 5. Now he for who prepared for us this very purpose is God who gives us the spirit as a pledge. And what he's saying here is is that when we receive Christ, the Spirit of God comes and takes up residence within us. And it begins having conversations with us. It begins empowering us and leading us. And when we sense the leading of God's Spirit in our lives, we are supposed to look at that and say, this is a part, this is a down payment of God's promise of eternity future, that he wants to be with me. So that we can have confidence that God is a God who keeps his promises. And finally, in verses 6 through 10, he talks about the full blessing and vision of God's plan is yet to come. That we live in what theologians call the already not yet tension of the kingdom. That God has begun transforming us and transforming his followers, his church. But that it's a process and that eventually what will happen is, The Lord will come back and he'll set everything right and we'll live in the fullness of God's whole plan for the human race. But for right now, we see pieces and aspects of those promises being fulfilled and we can live in the hope and in the assurance of eternity future. So now we're ready to talk about motives and let's start in 2nd core 5, 9 through 11. He says, therefore, meaning because of all those things that we just talked about, we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men, but we are made manifest to God. And I hope that we are made manifest to you also in your consciences. Now, as you sit and you read that, you're like, that sounds more scary than good, frankly. You know, as I look at this, I look at the components of this and what he's doing in this passage is he's talking about three different motives. Why should we want to serve God? And that's what we're going to focus in on is these three different motives that he's talking about at the end of Second Core five. And the first one is what he calls "the fear of the Lord." And that sounds like something that we're all very familiar with. It sounds like, you know, the hell and brimstone preacher, these jerks that, you know, get up and they try to motivate people by fear. They paint God as though he's got a gun to your head. And if you're not good and you don't do what he wants, he's going to pull the trigger. And many of us were raised in churches that had that kind of perspective. They believed that if we could cause people to fear hell, we can get them to behave in the right way. It's a fear-threat motive, and he calls it the fear of the Lord. And he just said, we're going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ, and he's going to recompense us. I don't know about you, but I don't like the idea of being recompensed, okay? And so you look at that stuff, and you say, well, you know, here we go. Here's the church, you know, trying to control people by threatening them with the spiritual boogeyman. And so we have to really grasp this. Of the three motives we talk about, I'm going to spend the most time working on this one because it's so crucial that we understand accurately what Paul means when he's saying this. He says in verse 9, our ambition is to please him, that we want to please God, that that's something that drives us. That's a motive that we have. Each person will appear before the judgment seat of Christ and be recompensed for God for, for good and for bad. And that we need to know the fear of the Lord. So the question is, is what does he mean when he says, says these things? Let's not find a way to fit it into our presuppositions or what we would like it to say. Let's try to figure out through good interpretation what it is that Paul means to say. And this raises all kinds of questions, doesn't it? Is fear a way that God wants to motivate us? That would be the primary question that I think that we need to ask. Is that what it means? Is that what Paul is meaning to say? That we should be trembling and scared and looking around every corner and trying to do good things because God's going to get us. Is that what he means? Well, good interpretation, the rules of good interpretation when we say, I want to understand what this author means is to look at what he's saying in the context. What has he said before this? How does what he say here fit in the logical, rational flow of what he's been saying? And that becomes very important because we just talked about all the things that chapter in chapter five, verses one through eight, that he said right before he said all this stuff. And what was it? That God has a plan for you, that God has already loved you, God has already forgiven you, God has already given you a spirit, his spirit is a pledge, and you are guaranteed as a believer in Jesus Christ to live in this eternity future. So how does that fit with the idea that God wants us shaking in our boots under fear? That's a pretty good question. We have to reconcile, you know, if you take a uh, Bible as literature in college, they'll tell you about these many biblical contradictions, right? And the people are always saying the Bible always contradicts itself. Well, if it's from God, it actually can't contradict itself because God cannot lie according to scripture. And if the Bible is God's word, then it has to fit together. And we say, well, I guess, you know, we have a problem here and not really, not if you understand this properly. You also have things like earlier in the same letter, the same author to the same audience on the same occasion said things like this. Second Corinthians one, three through four. Blessed be the God and father of the Lord Jesus Christ, the father of mercies, the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our afflictions so that we will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Does that sound like a God who wants to put a gun to your head and say, obey me or I'll pull the trigger? How can he be that and the God of all comfort? So you look within the book itself and you find he cannot mean fear of hell. That is not what he means then you can broaden out and you can compare what he's saying here to what other books of scripture say as well. Because if the source of this is as it claims from the creator God of the universe, it has to be consistent with itself. And so we find passage after passage, things like first John four, 18, 19, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. Because fear involves punishment, and the one who fears is not perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. So fear God, but perfect love casts out fear, and these have to be reconciled together. We have passages like Hebrews 4.16. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. God's attitude towards us is we are his children. We are much beloved and we can go running into the throne room of God and crawl right up onto his lap because he's dad. Yes, he is the alpha and the omega, the all powerful creator God of the universe. But your family, does that sound like he wants you trembling, trembling in fear? Not at all. Romans 8, 38, and 39, Paul, the same author as 2 Corinthians, writes, For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Do you see how God has removed the threat? And of course... Romans 8, 1 and 2, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the spirit of life in Christ has set you free from the law of sin and death. What that tells us is whatever fear of the Lord is, whatever, however we approach that question, we can be very confident of this fear of the Lord is not fear of hell, rejection or punishment. Because he says this is a judgment seat, the judgment seat of Christ, where believers will go and be recompensed for their deeds. Well, believers, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We can never be separated from the love of God. We've been given the spirit of God as a pledge of his promise. So now that we know what fear of the Lord isn't, can we figure out what it is? What is the judgment seat of Christ, and how, we'll be, how will we be recompensed? What does that mean? Well, if you look at a broader study of Scripture, you find that there are two judgments, two different judgments that the Bible speaks of that sort of at the end of human history, that God explains that this is not going to go on like this forever. We've been here for thousands and thousands and thousands of years. And God is allowing this to go on, and he, but he is revealing himself and he is working through us so that as many people can come to a knowledge of him as possible. But there will come a point where the Bible says, it looks like what it says is, we'll basically come to the brink of destroying ourselves. God will come in, he'll intervene, he'll blow the referee whistle, and he'll say, game over. This is my creation, you are my children, and I will not allow you to destroy it. And he'll bring an end to history as we know it. And that there will be a judgment. Because God is just and righteous. And he must destroy evil. And he will, according to scripture. And there will be these two different judgments. The one is called the great white throne judgment. It's Revelation 20, 11. This is the one you don't want to be at. And it's real easy You don't want to be at the great white throne judgment any more than you want to swim with a great white shark, right? (laughs) Even more so I would rather swim with a great white shark than be at the great white throne judgment. This is, this is where you don't want to be because this is where the question will be have, has the evil in your life, has there been justice for the evil that you have perpetrated? And this is the whole reason why Jesus Christ came and died on the cross, so that he could take the judgment that we deserve upon ourselves. God's standard is perfection. His question is not, have you committed more evil than good? Let's get out the scales and weigh it out. That's not how the God of the Bible works. The God of the Bible says, have you committed evil? If that's the case, then you deserve judgment. The wages of sin is death. And we all have sinned. The Bible says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So we are all under that judgment. We all deserve to go before the great white throne and be condemned by our creator. But he came in the person of Jesus Christ. And he died for us so that he could take our place. It says literally the wrath of God was poured out on Jesus who had no sin. He who knew no sin became sin on our behalf. So that we're left with a choice. We can still choose. God doesn't force us into a relationship with him. He doesn't force us to receive this gift. We can choose and say, I am a self-made man. I am a self-made woman. And I will stand before you, God, on my own merits. And I will take whatever judgment I deserve. That's the bad thing to do. That's the thing that we don't want anyone, that God doesn't want anyone to do because he will honor that choice. He believes so much in free will that he will let you make that choice. Or you can stand before God and say, Jesus died and took the punishment that I deserve. And so you don't even go to the great white throne judgment because you have been reconciled to God by the blood of the lamb. And that's the difference at the great white throne judgment is that believers are not judged there. Then there's what's called the judgment seat of Christ. This is referred to often as the Bema seat judgment, which is the word Bema is just the the Greek word that's being translated as judgment here. And it has a different connotation completely. Everybody there is a child of God. Everybody there has the spirit of God. And everybody there is going to heaven because Jesus died for them and they received it as a free gift. But what will happen is, is their faithfulness will be examined. What they did with what God gave them, what they did in their time here on earth will be rewarded if they were faithful and in the ways that they are faithful. So we're there as God's children already accepted and forgiven. And the question will be, is what good stuff did you do that I can reward you for? God likes to reward those who follow him. And that is what Paul is talking about here, when he talks about the fear of the Lord, and when he talks about standing before the judgment seat of Christ, he's talking about the Bema seat. Paul talked about this in 2 Timothy 2, or 4, 7 through 8. He said, I have fought. This is is Paul talking about his looking forward to the Bema seat judgment at the end of his life. He's about to die. He's writing to uh, a young man who was like his son. And he says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. In the future, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. The Bema seat judgment is something to look forward to. Where God will put his arms around you and say, well done, good and faithful servant. Jesus told a parable of the talents in Matthew 25:21, which seems to be a, a, it's a parable, but it's a description of what this, what this evaluation will be like. He says in 25:21, his master said to him, well done, good and faithful slave. You are faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. And that is a motive that we should live for a motive that we should live for a motive something that can motivate us to serve is to please god and live consistently with his truth proverbs 15:33 notice how i'm jumping around to all these different places in the bible because i want you to see the consistency of how these things are talked about old testament proverbs 15:33 the fear of the lord is the instruction For wisdom and before honor comes humility. What is he talking about when he says fear of the Lord? He's talking about living God's way. Agreeing with God about what is right, the way things are, respecting God's truth, and living as though spiritual things matter most. That's the fear of the Lord. Not trembling that we might go to hell if we don't do the right things, but having a a sober, earnest understanding That God's ways are great, that we respect God, and we want to live consistently with the path that he's laid out for us. That's what the fear of the Lord is. Wiersbe, in his commentary on 2 Corinthians, put it this way, the term judgment seat comes from the Greek word bima, which was the platform in Greek towns where orations were made or decisions were handed down by Rulers. It was also the place where the awards were given out to the winners in the annual Olympic Games. That's the beam of seat judgment. We're in the middle of the Olympics right now. The Olympics is the, beam of seat is the podium, right? And some will get silver and some will get gold and some will get bronze. But no one gets destroyed, right? <laughs> you did so terrible that we're going to kill you, you know? It's a place of reward where there will be different rewards for different levels of faithfulness, but no one will be rejected there. It's important that we understand that. He says, "...the judgment seat must not be confused with the great white throne from which Christ will judge the wicked." Because of the gracious work of Christ on the cross, believers will not face their sins, but will have to give an account of our works and service for the Lord. What we do or don't do matters, even though we are going to eternity with him. The fear of the Lord then, is the promise of future reward, which raises the next question. You might say, well, is that really a proper spiritual motivation? Isn't there sort of an inherent greediness to that? I'll serve God so that I can get stuff in eternity, right? And we have this whole thing. We have a critique against materialism. Don't live for things. Don't live for power. Don't live for success. Don't live. And, but the reason we critique all those things on this earth is because they're all temporary. They're going to be destroyed, Live for that eternal stuff that you're going to get and get to keep forever. Live for that reward. Is that proper? Well, God certainly thinks so. God is offering that over and over and over again as a demonstration of the kind of reasoning that we should go through. Why should I live for spiritual things? Because I want to lay up my treasure in heaven, as Jesus says. I want to invest in things that will not be destroyed. And that's the idea of the fear of the Lord. Paul was certainly motivated as he talks about running the race and buffeting his body and persevering through suffering. A big part of what he talks about is, I can't wait because I'm laying up my treasure in heaven. And I want to I hear that. I want to get that crown and that wreath and that laurel. And I want to hear that, well done, good and faithful servant. And he lived for that. Yes, it is okay. It is good. To be motivated by pleasing God in the hope of future rewards. Doing things that please God is a great way to express our love and our gratitude for him. That is a proper motivation, a good motivation for us to want to serve. And that's what he's talking about when he's talking about fearing the Lord. The second motivation he talks about is the greatest motivation. It's the love of God, not so that God will love us, but because God loves us. And again, we have to understand the difference between that. Second Corinthians 5, 14 through 17, for the love of Christ controls us. Having concluded this, that the one died for all, therefore all died. Talking about Jesus's death for us. And he died for all so that they who live might not, may, might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. The fact that Jesus died for us and loves us enough to adopt us, to to heal us and forgive us of our wickedness with no strings attached becomes an incredible motive for being involved in God's work. What better motive can there be than when you know that someone loves you then of course you're pleased, you're motivated to please them. This last Friday was my daughter Lexi's 13th birthday. And we've had a crazy run. I mean, we went went out uh, to Glacier National Park for a week, had a great time, good family time, but we hiked, you know, over 30 miles during the time we were on that trip. So it's one of those things where you you know you go on a trip and your body is broken. You know, you're, you're, you're not more relaxed. You're just wasted physically, right? And then we spent a week studying this church in Idaho that uh, has some really cool things going on and we'll be sharing more about that. But we spent some time uh, investing there. And so we were gone almost two and a half weeks Flew home, our flights got delayed, got home at 2.35 a.m., you know, on Wednesday. So got back, you know, tried to get on our feet on Thursday. Friday was my daughter's birthday. It was also the night of her junior high Bible study at our house. Also, my wife has just started her new job as a Columbus public school teacher. And it happened to be the day that our new puppy was arriving. This was Friday. Okay. So Jess and Lexi are at home getting the house ready to go for 10 screaming junior high girls to come over. I'm going down to pick up this nine week old puppy. It's an English. uh, It's called a Mastweiler. It's an English Mastiff with a Rottweiler combined. Cute as a button right now. So my son, Logan, and I are driving, you know, to get this puppy and, you know, it's 430. They're getting ready. And, you know, Jess had given me very strict instructions. Do not come home without dinner, right? Like <laughs> we're going to need you to bring dinner. So we get the puppy. We do all the stuff. We go through the drive thru at Jimmy John's. We get, you know, subs and I'm driving home. I'm two minutes from home. We're all hustling. And my daughter calls me and she's like, mom forgot to tell you that we're supposed to, that my birthday dinner is supposed to be from Genzigo. Now, Ginzigo is, you know, this hole-in-the-wall Japanese restaurant, and she loves the dumplings. I don't know why. They're nothing special. Okay? They're fine. But they're not, you know. But she would eat these dumplings every day for every meal if she could, and she's been that way. I mean, she's not burned down on it yet. It's been over a year. Right? So what I find out as I'm bringing dinner home that she was supposed to get dumplings on her birthday. Right? And I'm like, babe. I'm two minutes from home, I didn't know, I got you a sub from Jimmy John's. And you know what she said? She was like, that's cool, we'll do it another time. And I'm like, Armageddon couldn't stop me from turning this car around and going to Genzigo, <laughs> right? I don't care what happens, this girl is getting Genzago dumplings. <laughs> Why is that? Because I love her. And she loves me, and that is the motive. I mean, I'm i a fairly prickly guy. I'm not a guy who goes the extra mile when I'm set on a course and there are things that need to get done. I don't veer off course easily. But my daughter wanted dumplings on her birthday. That's what we're talking about. The power of love to motivate us to service. That when we understand how much God loves us and how much that he's done for us, Nothing will stand in our way because we feel and experience his love. The love of God can powerfully motivate us to serve. This is not about our love of Christ, but about understanding Christ's love of us. That is where true power to bring the power of God into the lives of those who don't know him is to understand God's love for you. He says in verse 16, therefore, from now on, we recognize no one according to the flesh, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh. Yet now we know him in this way no longer. And what he's saying is when you experience the love of God in your life and you understand who God is, it changes your perspective on everyone else. Without God, we treat each other like, you know, we treat people on the road. Right. We cuss them out and we think they're worthless. And, you know, we treat people like they're garbage, like they're like trash. What value do they have? They are obstacles that need to get out of my way. You come to experience the love of God and you come to love God and and understand God's love for you. And everyone you see is a child of God that Jesus died for, that Jesus loves. Whether they know it or not, whether they're a Christian or not, God created them, he loves them, and he wants a relationship with them. They are your brothers and sisters. How paradigm-shifting is it when you experience the the love that God has for you and realize he has that same love for everyone you've ever met? Love is a powerful motivator. It changes the way you see the world. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, the new things have come. It's a completely different ballgame. Which brings us to our third motive to examine. The call of God. Chapter 5, verses 20 through 21. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were making an appeal through us, we beg you on behalf of Christ. Be reconciled to God. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Go and share this powerful love. God, not because God has demanded it of you. Not because he has a gun to your head and he'll pull the trigger if you don't obey. Because you can. Because he has given us the sweet gift Not only of salvation, but of being involved in his work. It's the family business, helping people get saved. And we're all a part of it. When we come into Christ, you are grafted into that family of God. And that work that he wants for us to do. Where he wants us to represent him, not ourselves. God took away the judgment that we deserve. He asks us to receive him. He comes into our life and he wants us to use others to to be used by him to show others his love. That is what he's talking about. So when God asks this call of God, what is your answer going to be as a child of God? Not out of obligation, but out of desire. When God asks, is your answer? Yes, because he's God. Because he is the all-powerful creator God of the universe who owns all things, and he's asking you to be his representative. Because he's worthy, because he's not a grumpy old man who hates fun, because he is a loving, compassionate, incredibly merciful, righteous, and just being that is worthy of our lives' devotion. Because you love him, And because you are loved by him, your answer should be yes. Because he asked, your answer should be yes. I want to close here with a quick disclaimer. Whenever we talk about motives, like I said at the beginning, it gets sticky and complicated, right? What are my motives? Should I I do the right thing for the wrong reason? All those things. None of us ever have pure motives. None of us. We are all, as believers, yes, we have the power of God, we have the spirit of God, but we still have these earthly vessels that are filled with corruption. And we never have pure motives. And there's a danger in over-examining your motives. As you think about this, you know, you might be thinking, oh, my God, if you knew my motives, you would just know, oh, phew. you know, I never do the right thing for the right reason. Well, you're like the rest of us. And there's a danger in saying, well, I can't do what's right until I know I'm doing it for the right reasons. And we call that paralysis by analysis. Okay. Where you're just so like, oh, I can't move forward because what if I fail because my motives are wrong and God might punish me? Do it. If it's, if it's consistent with God's word, do it. And if you fail then you will learn dependence and you will learn. God will reveal to you what your true motives are so that you can accept his forgiveness, his grace, and you can continue to grow. I think this verse sums up this issue the best in Psalm 139, 23 to 24. David says, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts and see if there be any hurtful way in me and lead me in the everlasting way. This is a position of faith. This is a position of dependence and strength where you're saying, I'm worried about my motives and I don't know. They may be mixed. I don't know what's going on. Just turn to God and say, God, if I have motives that I'm not even aware of, will you deal with it? Will you reveal it? And I know that I've been forgiven and help me grow. Help me become a person who is more and more motivated by your love. Even while I have all these other selfish motivations in the process and you can know you can be confident that that's the kind of prayer that God always answers being ambassadors for Christ. So what does it look like to be an ambassador for Christ? That's what we'll talk about next week in chapter 6. Um we have a new scripture type of verse for chapter 6. If you guys are following along, we're having a lot of fun with that. It's been really cool that uh, great app for Bible memorization. It's second course 6. Uh, two yes second course six two it might be two and three Um, obviously I haven't memorized it yet (laughs) thanks God for your consistent love thanks that your truth and your character is utterly reliable that your promises to us are guaranteed and that you change not only our hearts, as we come to understand how you love us, but that you change the way that we see each other. We will continue on from here, from this, this moment this morning, uh, and we will continue to fail. And we will continue to have mixed motives, and we will fall short. But we want God to grow, and we want others to experience what we have experienced in you And for them to have their eyes open to the incredible possibility of real love, real relationship, and real community. And we just pray, God, that you'll ever sharpen our ability to demonstrate that and provide it for those in our family and in our lives. Amen.